Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. which I'll get to, it's confusing, um, and I come to this service and I'm married to the lovely Chris in the back and uh, have two children, hopefully quietly somewhere out of eye line, uh, so I can focus, um, and I uh, run a Christian think tank called Theos, and this is my first time preaching, so I hope you will go easy on me. Um, so, a little bit of context, I find, uh, you know, th- this is not an easy passage, don't worry if you're like, uh, it's not an easy passage. And, you know, there, there's, um, there's lots of the Bible that aren't easy, so uh, that isn't easy. So a little bit of context um, about how I try to think about uh, particularly the Old Testament, but the Bible in general. The lens I try and use is it's all about relationships. And I get there because Jesus said that he would summarize the whole uh, law and the prophets as love God and love people. So our, the important things in our lives is our horizontal relationship with God, vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with people. So whenever we're coming to a passage like this, it's good to ask, how can this help me love God and love people? If the people in the passage are doing that, great, we can learn from them. If they're not doing that, maybe we can learn from their mistakes. And uh, David is doing a bit of a mixture of the two here. So so you know where we're going, because I think signposting is important, because I can't always uh, hold too much in my head at any one time, particularly after not having much sleep. Um, that the thing I've been learning from David here about how to love God and love people um, is that we need wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness helps us love God and love people. And two particular elements of that we're going to be digging into are courage and vulnerability. That's what you thought, wasn't it, when you read the passage? Oh, yes, obvious. This is all about courage and vulnerability. I hope I can convince you that I think it really is. But first, we're going to recap the story because this is quite dense. Bits of it are quite difficult. um, And... You might be really over-familiar with it, so I want to try and tell it to you in a way that helps us feel it and live it and get um, a really fresh sense of it. So to help guide you, this is a story of two processions. One procession with the ark ends in absolute disaster. The second procession ends in delight and celebration. And I think wholeheartedness and courage and vulnerability is how we get from procession one to procession two. So start of the passage, um, we haven't got up there, but if you want to follow it so you know that I am not just making this up. Uh, David has been focusing on really practical areas of kingship. If you flick back a few chapters, the the run-up to this passage is he's been defeating his enemies, he's been building himself a house, he's he's a new king, these were the first things he's sorting out. Um, But next on his new king to-do list is to bring the ark, which is essentially a box um, providing a home for God's presence, I realise there's a lot more we could say about that, but that's enough for us to understand what's going on here. Um, he's going to bring the ark up to his new capital of Jerusalem. And if you, do, if you did flick back to the previous chapters, you'd see a repeated verse. David inquired of the Lord. Should I go fight the Philistines? David inquired of the Lord. What should I do about this house? David inquired of the Lord. He's asking God all the way what he should be doing. But we don't see that here. Maybe he's got a bit cocky from all his military victories. Maybe he just assumes he knows what God wants. Some people read this as this lack of inquiring, this lack of asking God how to do this really big thing of moving the ark up to his new capital as implying slightly mixed motives. Yes, David loves God. He wants his presence. But he also possibly wants to consolidate his rule. He wants to put the symbol of God's power at the heart of his new capital. 
is the ultimate political endorsement. It's the ultimate stamp of approval on his new kingship. It's not new that leaders sometimes possibly want to co-opt religion to shore up their own power. And there may be some of that going on here. But whatever the reason, he completely disregards some very clear instructions from the book of Numbers about how the ark is to be moved around. And it's supposed to be carried on the shoulders of priests. It's supposed to not be handled by anyone who's not a priest. And there's a lot of, a lot of other very specific instructions. It is definitely not supposed to be put on a cart, whacked on the back of the lorry, driven up to Jerusalem by anyone that David can find standing around. And we won't look at them but there are chapters and chapters about this in Numbers and Leviticus, and they're all intended to communicate one fact. This box, this ark, represents the presence of God, and God is holy. Holiness is a really, a really difficult concept. It's, a real, it's one of those words that's been kind of emptied in, in 2017. We live in an age that is disenchanted. We are suspicious of the sacred we don't like, I think, we don't tend, we don't feel comfortable thinking of specific places or things or people as holy or sacred. And the word is most often used as an insult. It means pious, uptight, not a lot of fun. So it's really important that we try and get our heads around what does the Bible mean by holiness. It's something about gloriousness, about beauty, overwhelming, unimaginable beauty and power, but also set apartness, separateness, not of this worldiness. And crucially, part and parcel of holiness is the potential for danger, because anything that is not holy tends not to come off too well when encountering it. It's not a perfect metaphor, so bear with me, but it might help to think of holiness as like fire. It's a force for good, great good, light and warmth and beauty but you need to take care. You can't get the goodness without the potential for harm. And those verses in the book of Numbers and Leviticus could be read as God's fire safety instructions. He's really clear. He's really, really clear. Take care. Take care with the ark. Do not play with matches. Always wear your fireproof gloves. Listen to me, children. This is important. Like a good parent, he wants to protect his children. So that's the context. So, the first procession. The ark has been at the house of Abinadab, and it's one of his sons, Uzzah, who's driving the cart. And this is a guy who's had this box in his house for at least 20 years, between 20 and 40 years. His whole childhood is just being in his house. It's really weird, right? Just like passing the salt over the ark. But he, of anyone, should technically know how it's supposed to be carried. You would hope that he had been properly briefed, right? That he'd had the fire safety drill. He may have told David he shouldn't go on the cart. Maybe Uzzah like, warned everyone that this was a really, really bad plan. Or maybe familiarity breeds contempt, and he'd forgotten. David certainly should have known, because in Deuteronomy 17, there's a bit written before Israel even had a king about how the future king should know the law, like should know it off by heart. That's the most important thing that the king should do, should know the law. This is part of his responsibility as a king. David should have known this. Maybe he knew, thought it wasn't important. Maybe he'd not actually studied it. Either way, when the ark looks like it's going to fall off the cart, Uzzah puts out his hand instinctively, and we can just see it happening in slow motion, touches the ark. 
he dies. Which is horrible, right? That's really shocking. It's really hard to read. I really, really don't like those verses. I, part of me just wishes they weren't there. You know, you know, there's other bits of the Bible that I feel that, particularly on first read, before you start to unpack what's going on in the background. And helpfully, helpfully for me at least, David doesn't love it either. He doesn't go, oh, holy God, of course, that was fair. Silly me, you struck him down. Oh, thank you, God, and just go on his way. It doesn't do that. It's really, it's really, uh, it's really human. The text says he is angry, really, really angry, and then he's afraid. He reacts exactly like we would. He shoves the ark in the nearest house and he leaves it there. He thought it was going to consolidate his rule. He thought it was going to shore him up. He thought it was going to make his life better. And it turns from an asset to a massive liability. He thought he was doing a good thing. You know, he's just trying to give God a home. And one of his mates get killed because he thought that fire drills were for chumps. So off he goes to lick his wounds. I find the Bible tremendously psychologically realistic. We tend to look back on ancient peoples and think that they were less complex than us, had less rich inner worlds, were more gullible and superstitious and simple. But I don't see that. <laughs> I see people being people. So procession one, that's your first bit. And it ends badly. It's failed. There is a man dead. David is angry and fearful. He names that place the breakthrough against Uzzah. Like, he does not want this forgotten. This is a big psychological scar. This is a really, really bad day. And I don't love that bit of the passage. And David really doesn't love that that has happened. But you know who else I don't think might love this? Other than you and me and David and probably everyone who's ever read it? I think God doesn't love it. And you know why I think that? It's the classic Sunday school answer. <laughs> because of Jesus. Because it doesn't end there. At this stage in the story, something in humans' relationship with God is not working brilliantly. All the safeguards that God has tried to put in to protect us from his extraordinary holiness aren't working. And God's holiness is a fact of himself. He can't just shed it for our sake. He wouldn't be God. But we don't seem to be able to handle it. We can't stop playing with matches. And God is a good father, and it breaks his heart when his children get burnt. So he does the thing that makes the safeguards foolproof. And somehow, through some great mystery, he turns the danger inherent in his holiness on himself. He solves the problem at the cross. Jesus, in some way or form, takes the place of Uzzah, the place of us. He contains the fire. And Jesus is why I can read this passage and not want to give up on this whole believing in a good God thing. Because it doesn't end here. And this stuff raises some of the knottiest and the most challenging theological questions with really long multisyllabic words and many, many theses written on them. So don't worry if you still wrestle with this. I've massively oversimplified what's going on there. So come talk to me. I'll probably refer you to Liam. <laughs> um, but... You know, don't, don't think um, that I want to just give a trite answer to that because it's, it shouldn't be trite. It is hard. But I think at the heart of it is something very, very good. That's procession one. Not a good day. Fast forward three months 
And it turns out that the Ark isn't such a liability after all. The family it's basically been dumped on, who aren't Israelites, by the way, but they're Gentiles, which is a foreshadowing of the opening up of God's covenant blessing to everyone, to all of us. They're really benefiting from having the Ark in the house. They presumably have taken the fire safety instructions seriously. And we don't know whether they were, they were given these, because they're not Israelites, so they won't necessarily know them, or just instinctively they treat this Ark better than the people who should have known how. But something means that they are basking in the light and warmth and beauty of the fire. It is a great blessing to them to have it in the house. And, you know, understandably, Dave, David spots this and thinks, okay, <laughs> let's try again. And this time he does it right. He brings the ark to Jerusalem and he dances before it. He dances with all his might. He takes off his grand kingly robes, the symbols of his status and his dignity. And he dances in a linen, linen ephod, which is basically not a lot of clothes. It's you know, not far off underwear. It's a little bit indecent. He dances with complete disregard. It's you know, that fridge maggot. He dances as if no one's watching. He dances in a way that is verging on embarrassing, but delightful with joy and release. And dancing isn't, by the way, prescribed. In those verses in Leviticus and Numbers, you don't get, when you, bring, when you move the ark, you have to dance. It's actually quite rare in the Bible. What we're seeing here is a very spontaneous, emotional, free, worshipful response. He is totally lost in the worship of his God. If you can imply anything from this, is that he really, really loves God. And this is the same God who three months earlier struck, him, struck one of his men down because of something that David did wrong. So how did David get from angry and afraid, closed off, shut down, running away, to wanting to dance before God? I think you can imagine someone going about procession two in a, in a very religious way, swallowing down their emotions, making sure they're, they're ticking every box, you know, doing it right this time, but still a bit fearful, still a bit angry, still a bit broken, still a bit closed off. That's, that's maybe what we would do. But I think the dancing means that's not what's happening with David. Something has happened in his internal world between procession one and procession two in that three-month window in the passage. And I think it's to do with his wholeheartedness. In our relationships with God and with others, we don't typically react like this. When we're angry with someone, when we feel we failed, and often those things are quite hard to extricate, when the world or other people disappoint us, we withdraw. We numb ourselves with our screens, or with food, or with drink or drugs, or with porn, or sex, or shopping, or exercise or whatever our own personal particular addiction is, whatever our own personal emotional survival strategy is. We put up our walls, we blame people, and we determine not to let ourselves experience those things again. We have a bad day, a really, really bad day like David had, and we shut down. We shut our hearts down. But David doesn't do that, or rather he does that initially, which is sort of reassuring, but he doesn't stay there. Now, I should say at this point that David is a bit of a tricky character. Excuse me. 
I really love clothes with pockets, as an aside. I've got my little pack in here. Um, in fact, lots of the characters in the Bible are tricky, and we're sometimes taught as if we should uh, use them as blueprints for our lives. But most of them leave a lot to be desired. This isn't the first or the last time that David messes up. But weirdly, Scripture seems to talk about him as someone especially precious to God. There's something about David that gives God joy. And it can't be his religious perfection. This is the guy, you know, we see him mess up here. Chapters later, sleeps with someone else's wife. Doesn't leave it there. Accidentally on purpose has her husband killed. You know, this is, this is, not, this is not a guy that is holy in the sense that our culture uses the word holy. He's not perfect, but he does seem to be wholehearted. And one way of reading God's love for him is that he loves his wholeheartedness. And I think a few things are happening in that three-month window that we can learn from. We can learn how to stay open and connected to God and to other people through life's challenges, through our own failures and through suffering that we don't understand. Now, I want to introduce you to Brene Brown. Um, Andy mentioned her last week. I know others have also mentioned her. It feels a little bit like she's becoming an unofficial member of the Christchurch leadership team. Um, and that's because so many of us have found her work so helpful. So if you don't already know it, you should. She's a social researcher of human emotions, and she came to fame through a few TED Talks on shame and vulnerability. There's one that's been watched by more than 30 million people. She also happens to be a practicing Christian and a member of a church, but her work helps people of all faiths and none. And she undertook a big study on what makes people who can maintain healthy relationships and are comfortable in their own skin, and she calls them wholehearted people. She doesn't mean perfect people, as we know David's not perfect, and God doesn't need us to be perfect. But I think God does want wholehearted people, because when we are wholehearted with him, we can truly live out of the joy of that relationship. And when we are wholehearted with others, we do less damage, a lot less emotional damage, and we are able to be radically more of a blessing to those around us. Being wholehearted helps us to love God and love people. In Ezekiel 36, God says to Israel, after a time of trauma and grief, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart without walls, a whole heart. I'm paraphrasing at the end there. So what does being wholehearted mean and what does it take? And two of the things I think we see all over scripture in this passage in which Brene Brown, funnily enough, found from her research are courage and vulnerability. I'll explain why in a moment. But as an aside at this point, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, you're not sure if you'd call yourself a Christian or you definitely wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're here today or um, uh, if you're listening later, <laughs> uh, you are demonstrating insane amounts of courage and vulnerability. We talk a lot about how trying to find faith uh, raises a lot of questions, how we need to work through our intellectual questions. But my experience, and I think a lot of others' experience, is trying to find faith is an emotional firestorm. <laughs> Exploring the possibility that God exists and that he loves you and he wants to be in a relationship with you feels absolutely flipping terrifying. It totally should. <laughs> it is. I think it's why most people run headlong in the other direction. The reason they give is that it's their rational questions, and that's part of it. But for most of us, it's sheer blind terror. 
Yes, the gospel is the best news anyone will ever hear. But it requires us to let down all of our walls, to admit to all of our failures, and to take an enormous risk that it might not be as good as it seems, that we might open ourselves up to God and he might not be what our hearts long for, that he might let us down. So if you're not a Christian, or you're searching, or you're not sure, or maybe you used to be and you're not sure if you are anymore, but you're sort of hanging on in there, well done. (laughs) That's a huge amount of courage. That's a huge amount of vulnerability. Like, if you can't bring yourself to sing or dance or even pray and you don't know what the hell it's all about and maybe it's all nonsense, that's fine. (laughs) Like, it's all right. Stick around. There's probably more of you than we know. Keep asking. And I'd love to pray for you. So I'm going to just talk about uh, courage and vulnerability for the last chunk of our time. Uh, And they're actually quite hard to separate. So excuse me if I, this is because I'm married to a philosopher and I I feel the need to define my terms. (laughs) Um, They're they're a bit mushed together. Um, But I do think they're pretty inseparable. The root of the word courage is the French word cœur. 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 So there's probably some French people in here. French word for heart. For heart, not for will, not for weapons, not for muscles. Heart. It's not about willpower. Which gives us a clue. And there are various ways of developing courage. And I think one of the best ways, and certainly the way David did so, is in worship. We develop a whole heart. We grow in courage and vulnerability in worship, in dancing and singing to God. And to be honest with you, I don't think that's obvious. I read it first from um, a book by Andy Crouch called The Techwise Family. And he says, worship is the path to real courage. And when I read it, I went, really? (laughs) Because, you know, Christians, we do tend to say worship is the answer to everything. (laughs) I'm not seeing the connection, Andy. But the more I thought about it, the more true it felt. It takes courage and vulnerability to worship because you can't do it with your walls up. Just like you can't say I love you and mean it without exposing yourself. And he says, worship calls us out of the small pleasures of our easy everywhere world. And by that, he's talking essentially about the way technology um, is uh, removing challenge and struggle from lots of different areas of our lives. Making everything leisure. So worship calls us out of the small pleasures of our, our leisure time, really, into the real joy and burden of bearing the image of God in a world where nothing is easy, where everything is broken, and yet redemption is possible. It's not, worship's not kind of Pollyanna time. It's not put your hands in the air, stick a grin on your face, come by our time. It's really not. You cannot worship while you're numbing yourself. If worship feels numb to you, and this is, you know, something that happens to me quite often. If worship feels going through the motions, if worship feels like, la, 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 when is this over? So we can get to the sermon. When can I get a cup of tea? Something is going on in your heart. The walls are up. Worship trains us in taking risks. When we encounter our God in worship and develop a safe, um, we develop a deeper sense of being loved and safe. It encourages us. encourages us. It puts courage into us. It heals our hearts. <laughs> so I've just realized this timer here doesn't mean I've been going for 11 minutes. 
I was like, I've got loads of time. It means it's the time. I'm not very good with numbers. I'm really not. I can't do dice. Something about it not adding up to 10 that really throws me. Right. I said at the beginning that a good lens for reading the Bible is what does it tell me about loving God and loving people? I'm going to speed up now. <laughs> when Jesus said, love God and love people, he was in part echoing the Shema Israel. My Hebrew pronunciation is possibly slightly dodgy there. The central words of Isaiah's life. I think we have a slide with them. Um, I'm going to just paraphrase them uh, uh, so you will at some point see what it really says. But it, to summarize it, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, with everything you've got. Keep these words in your heart. Teach them to your children. Recite them at home and away. Write them on your body. Write them on your buildings. Don't forget. And this passage has become more significant to me since having kids. I'm so aware that I am framing the world for them. I'm teaching them what's good and bad, what to strive for, their own worth and their lovableness, and not just consciously. The space that my husband and I live in the stories that I tell them, the way I talk to and about other people, the art that they're exposed to, all of it will form the way they think and feel and live and love. And the Bible knows this. It says, be intentional about this formation. Don't let it happen accidentally. And the Bible's so strong on this because it's hard, because loving God and by extension loving people is really, really hard there are many other spaces and forces and stories trying to form us in the other direction, towards a less whole heart, towards self-protection and cynicism and risk aversion and invulnerability and tribalism. And anyone who saw the news from Charlottesville yesterday can see what happens when those forces are allowed to do their worth. It's a battle. Life happens. We fail. I fail. Uzzah dies. We can't pay our bills. Our friends betray us. We look in the mirror and we hate what we see. We get angry and we get afraid. We're really wounded. <laughs> so we put up our walls and we stop being brave and our hearts shrivel up a little bit and our lights dim. And worship is a way of living out the Shema. It is an opposing force. It is the fight back. It is intentional formation. When we sing and dance and kneel and clap and put our hands in the air or create visual art or drama or put money in the bucket or sew pew-kneelers, rather than just having abstract thoughts about God, we engage our hearts and our minds and our souls and crucially our bodily strength. It trains us in courage and it trains us in vulnerability. In the months between procession one and procession two, it's a pretty good bet that David was worshipping. We have a whole book of the worship songs that he wrote, uh, like one that will come up behind me, which is just an example. When David tries to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he is able to make himself incredibly vulnerable. I mean, this is a big risk. What if someone else is struck down? What if David is struck down? Us are dying, and the procession ending in absolute disgrace must have struck a huge blow to David's status. His desire to use the ark as a political tool has failed. He is humiliated in front of his nation. If it happens again, that's probably it. The nation's going to revolt. Why would they want a king that God is angry with? He's risking everything. I felt this. I felt, I felt 
the courage required to go back to God. After something's gone wrong in my life, I've been tempted to walk away from my faith. I've had two reasonably long periods of trying really hard to be an atheist. Things in the Bible didn't make any sense. You know, this is a book I have a complex relationship with. There was too much suffering in the world. There still is. I was angry with God and I was scared and I ran away and I felt like I'd been a fool, a gullible fool for believing in God's faithfulness. And David starts there, and a lot sooner than I did, he runs towards God. He screws up his courage, and he makes himself vulnerable again, and he worships. He pours out psalms. He tells God he's disappointed. He says he doesn't understand about Uzzah. He says, is it really that big a deal, touching the ark? There are things in the Christian life we might never understand. But he takes his whole broken, conflicted heart, and he goes to God. He is wholehearted. And when he brings the ark, he dances with joy. David is not angry and he's not afraid. He's in love with the fire. Its warmth and its light and its beauty have captured his heart. And this second procession is not about David's kingly status. He's taken off the trappings of power, of invulnerability. He's not interested in using the ark to consolidate his own rule. He makes himself vulnerable before God and before others. And that others is really important. Vulnerability with God helps us be vulnerable with others. Jesus takes two commands from the Old Testament and puts them together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. One is from Leviticus and one is from Deuteronomy. And he unites them. How we are with God is vital for how we are with others. Which is another reason worship is so important. And the older I get, the more I think vulnerability is the key to healthy relationships. You can't really connect with anyone unless they really see you. And they can't really see you unless you let them. And let me tell you something, when they see you, they will see that you're a mess. You're a bag of compromise and contradiction and goodness and selfishness and pride and fear and compassion. And really, so am I. <laughs> I mean, especially me. We're all a big fat mess. Massive, failing, foolish mess in need of God's love and the love of others. There's something immensely liberating about letting down our walls and saying that, not marketing ourselves, not pretending. And it frees others. And I've been on a real journey with this. I lead an organization. Uh, I got the job when I was quite young. I was Utterly terrified every day for a year, felt sick every morning. And the way I got over that is I wore a suit and I wore heels. And I started calling myself Elizabeth, because Elizabeth sounded more like a grown-up than Liz. Um, I still quite like Elizabeth. Um, but I have stopped wearing heels and I have stopped wearing suits. Because there's no point. I mean, I'd rather just wear no shoes at all. Heels makes me like six foot four. And really, anyway, I won't go into it. I am learning to be vulnerable in public, because when I lead out of my vulnerability, because I have practiced my vulnerability with God, I am so much more effective. One final example. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, someone came up to me and said that my dancing around in the back of church had really liberated them to dance themselves in worship. And um, I love to dance, but you know, I'm six foot and uh, not built like a, like a dancer. I got kicked out of my ballet class when I was 11 for being, and I quote, too much of a heffalump, <laughs> which I've had a lot of prayer for. Um, uh, but I am a bit flaily 
Like, if you come too near, you might get hit in the face by a limb. Um, but I love it. There is, there, is, there is no way of worshipping that makes me feel more connected and free. And I've just got over myself, so I do it now. And someone else has felt freed to do that as well. And I really hope, Tim, that we can create an expressive dance troupe with some flags and do some performance up the front. Most people will react to your vulnerability with relief. But final thing, some people won't. Michelle does not react well to David's vulnerability. And I could, by the way, preach a whole sermon on Michelle and that really upsetting and disturbing final verse and the whole treatment of women in the Old Testament and why actually, there's a really good reason she's like a cynical critic. It's because she's had a really horrible time. Um, but I won't, because that's not for today. Um, but just so you know, don't just let that sit if that raises issues for you. But what we can see is that Michelle is scornful and sarcastic and she's seeking to wound. And our vulnerability will scare people. If we hold ourselves in place, if we dig deep for courage and vulnerability and we don't hit back or withdraw or blame, most of them will be disarmed. In my life, I've experienced that, dealing with really spiky critics um, through my kind of public stuff. If you just keep holding yourself in place, open and vulnerable and brave, even your most angry, fearful critics often come round. Not all of them will, and that's the price of courage and vulnerability. But when we practice it in God's presence, we learn the safety and wholeheartedness that we need to live in the joy and the terror that courage and vulnerability brings. If the band would like to come up, I will just briefly pray, if that's okay. God, I pray that this week, whether in speaking up in meetings or telling someone they've hurt us or telling someone that we love them or inviting someone to Alpha or praying to God for the first time or just asking someone to be our friend, we would live in courage and vulnerability. We would be our whole selves before you and before others. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.